Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back. It's uh, today's 13 October, and this is episode 59. So AUSA is over. Uh, First of all, this is going to be kind of an AUSA, I don't know, Round up, roll up, something like that. I might, I might have to do a couple of shows to cover everything that happened in AUSA. In case you didn't know, AUSA is Association of the United States Army. It's a conference they do it in D.C. every October. It was from 10 to 12 October this year. It ended yesterday. I caught most of the first day, or a lot of the first day on the 10th, because it was a federal holiday. Uh, it was a day off for me. And then yesterday, I caught about an hour, hour and a half, you know, whatever I could live stream, and then today I caught nothing. So I went over some of the stuff that I could figure out, so this is going to be kind of a jumping around episode. Hopefully I can be as clear as I can. Anybody that listens to the show know I have a tendency to ramble sometimes, so I'll try not to do it. And I'll just give you some of the takeaways that I that I learned and pass on to you. Uh, so I just might as well get started. Let's see. So the big takeaway that just overarching is that uh, people matter and, you know, the Army's always been a not really a platform-centric force like the Navy and the Air Force. It's always a people organization. Uh, there's a reason why the infantry is the largest branch in the Army. And, you know, the Army kind of has reiterated that, uh, reiterated that people first um, is kind of uh, what they're going for and it's important to the Army. So, Without, and this is kind of, I'll try not to ramble on too much, but here we go. Um, so the Flora, the uh, future long-range assault aircraft, the decision has been postponed. Um, we'll kind of talk about that in a little, little bit in a second, but uh, I thought it was going to happen in September. It didn't happen in September. I thought it was going to happen this week, and it didn't happen. I even did a show on it last episode, so that didn't happen. Um, MDO. Uh, FM 3.0 operations. It's out. It came out. Uh, I saw it online. I think it was yesterday. I even looked at it a little bit today. There's a good article, uh, I think, in uh, Breaking Defense on it. Uh, I read it. I think Defense News did an article on it, too. Some of the couple of the big hitters did article on 3.0. I'm going to check it out, and I might do my own little take on it in the future, probably in a few days, a week, whatever. I'm not got to digest it first. So 3.0 is out. We knew that was going to happen, or we thought it was going to happen. Uh, there's a good story by the 5th Corps commander uh, in Poland on opportunities to working with allies. That's in one of the defense uh, websites. I kind of glanced over it, uh, but that was kind of came up during AUSA. Might, might do a story on that in the future. Uh, another big mantra you kept hearing is 24 programs in 23. And we alluded to it in the last few episodes that 24 modernization programs are either going to be prototyped or in soldiers' hands fielded uh, in FY23, which started one October. Let's see what else. Um, Chinooks. 
Uh, Schnooks are 90% back in the fleet, and 10% that's remaining will be up by the end of the year. Uh, you know, the Army grounded the Schnooks a couple months ago or a month ago about, a, I think it was a fuel leakage, and they've been working on it. But as of one of the takes I saw from this week was Schnooks are back going. And let's see what else. A good story about Project Convergence. Maybe I'll get to it today. I'm not sure, by Jen Judson uh, in Defense News from 10 October. I definitely want to get to it, if not this episode, the next. I'm thinking about it. Depend, depending on how long I, I ramble on about this other stuff. Um, and a good article by uh, In Breaking Defense by Andrew Everson and Sidney Freeberg about uh, – Army Chief, I guess they sat at an interview with the Chief of Staff, General McConville, and they got some takes on that. I think I'll get to that today for sure. And let's see what else. I saw a couple of uh, uh, streaming events with the Honorable Doug Bush, the uh, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition Logistics Technology. Of course, you know, every time I see something with the Honorable Doug Bush, Mr. Bush, Doug Bush, the Honorable Bush, however, I've heard it's pronounced a bunch of different ways or said a di- bunch of different ways. I'm always impressed with this guy, and the more I see him, the more I'm impressed with him. Um, there was a couple of events that I was able to catch with him, and, and I got some notes from that. And let me pause right there and pull those notes up, and I'll just go over what I got. So a lot of these notes that I'm fixing to read came from 11 October. He was on a panel called the AUSA Contemporary Military Forum, Building the Army of 2030, Modernization of Combat Capabilities, Uh, The people on this panel were, of course, the Honorable Doug Bush, the assaultee for the Army, and he's the Army Senior Acquisition Executive. Uh, General James E. Rainey, who's the new Commanding General of uh, U.S. Army Futures Command. Uh, General Edward M. Daly, who's Army Material Command, Material with an E. Uh, Wahid Nawabi, uh, Chairman, President, and CEO of Aero Environment. And Wes Anderson, not the director, but the vice president of defense, Microsoft. And just one over the world, my initial thoughts and my thoughts are, uh, Doug Bush was, again, every time I see him, he impresses me. He was very good on this, as usual. Uh, General Rainey for AFC was was good. Uh, General Daly, honest broker, I really didn't pay much attention to what he was saying. You know, he was okay. Uh, Waheed Nawabi uh, from Aero Environment, he was pretty good. Of course, he was, you know, I mean, think about what Aero Environment is doing. He was representing industry, obviously. And if you don't know about Aero Environment, those guys make the Puma, uh, which is, you know, being sent to Ukraine. Of course, the U.S. Army uses the Puma. It's a small UAS. They make the Raven, which is a small UAS that the Army uses. Uh, they make the WASP, which I think uh, the Air Force and Navy use, maybe the Marines. And they make this thing called the Jump 20, which is kind of an interim uh, future tactical UAS for the Army. And, of course, they make Switchblade uh, 300, Switchblade 600. So those cats are, you know, there's a reason why the man's got a smile on his face because they're doing good business. And they seem to be a pretty good company, pretty responsive. And uh, anyway, he was representing industry. And then there was this guy, Wes Anderson from Microsoft. Um, I know, very forgettable. I mean, I didn't put too much stock in what he had to say. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying he wasn't the reason why I was watching this in the first place. So let me get to, these are mostly uh, 
uh, Doug Bush's comments. So let's see. From 11 October, he thinks that uh, the modernization is on track. Army modernization, of course, is on track. There's always risks. Uh, let's see. He did refer to the IVAS in a previous interview that I caught on day one. And what I took from that when he was talking about IVAS, he says that uh, then they're working on software stability for the IVAS, uh, which I took to mean that, you know, this IVAS kind of has a wireless feature. And I think maybe it's cutting in and out. That's what I took from it. So software stability, in other words, that they don't want the wireless feature going out. So if this, if you're looking through the goggles and it's talking to your rifle through wireless and it keeps cutting out on you, well, that's not good. So that's this is my impression. I didn't read this anywhere, and this is my guess. Uh, the low-light performance, of course, you know the IVAS has a thermal capability and it has a low uh, I2 uh, image intensifier, night vision. Uh, but So it has both night vision and uh, thermal. Both have their advantages. And uh, But the traditional night vision that you see, the EMVGB, the PVS-14, PVS-7, whatever, it uses tubes. And uh, that's how it, don't ask me how it works, but it uses tubes. But the IVAS uses a camera system. And the camera, you know, this is kind of new technology, I guess, for a camera. And they're still working on the camera. So he said low light performance of the camera is what they're working on. I'm sure the thermal probably works just fine. And then he said form and fit, uh, form and, uh, form and fit for the IVAS. And, of course, from a previous episode, we know that the 1.0 IVAS still has that dopey harness that they're using that you wear on your head, I guess, and uh, which is never good. You don't ever want any harness. And it's got a cable that comes in front of you. I've seen a picture of it. It doesn't look... Doesn't look that great. But the 1.2 supposedly has got it where it's going to fit on the helmet itself. And they're going to do something else with the cable. So form and fit's very important. If you got a thing where it's reasonably comfortable and it's not getting in the way of the soldier and it doesn't impede his movement or her movement uh, during operations, then, you know, that goes a long way for acceptance. But if this thing's uncomfortable to wear, bulky, cuts in and out, nobody's going to like it. Again, these are all my opinions. Uh, let's see what else. Here's why he thinks that uh, modernization is going pretty good. Uh, he thinks uh, it's going pretty good because there's consistency of priority and consistency of uh, support by senior leaders in the Army. So if you've been keeping up with this Army modernization since 2017, 18, 19, nothing's changed. Those six six programs have been in the same order and have not changed, and that's been consistent through two different uh, Army Chiefs of Staff, two different SEC armies, uh, two different SEC defenses, so he's right about that. So that's why the Army's kind of, they think they've got it figured out, and they think they're doing the right thing, and they're consistent. Uh, he also talks about the reason why they think they're doing well is that they have flexible requirements that are very well thought, thought through. Uh, they're technically achievable. They're informed by experimentation and informed by real threats, meaning, you know, outside threats. So I think those four things, one, two, three, four. Yeah, that's about, about as clear as you can get. That's clear as a bell explanation. Um, again, that's kind of an example of what I think uh, Doug Bush brings to the table. Is He doesn't say a lot, but when he says something, it means something. Uh, he just doesn't waste words, kind of like me. Uh, let's see what else. Um, 
He thinks that the uh, acquisition system, the defense acquisition system, is a good system in place. I kind of agree on that. He thinks there's pretty good flexibility from Congress. Uh, he, t- he referred back to 2006, 2007, uh, 2016-2017, where they introduced it. I think it's the middle-tier acquisition, uh, MTA, where you can do rapid prototyping and rapid fielding. And uh, he used an example of the next-gen squad weapon, um, which was rapid prototyped, and then now it's going to be rapidly fielded. We're talking about the next-gen squad weapon, automatic rifle, and rifle that the Army kind of made an announcement on this year, and SIGS got it, Six Hour. And he said that there's going to be some new uh, flexibility with software modernization pathway, which is, I guess, I didn't know about that, but I'm going to look out for it. Let's see what else. He says there are risks in programs because, you know, some of these technically challenging programs are risky. Um, Let's see. He said 22 was a good year because uh, uh, the mobile protected firepower, which we talked about, you know, last summer or this summer, quite a few episodes ago, has made Milestone C. And Milestone C is defense acquisition talk for becoming a program of record, which means it's now funded. Uh, So MPF is program of record. That's a big deal. And next generation squad weapon is uh, done prototyping and they're going to start fielding rapidly fielding here, I guess, within the next year. Uh, he said the future for modernization they're looking at that might not be a priority is logistics modernization. I took that mean the common tactical truck and that water bison buffalo, probably some other stuff and Intel modernization. And I took that to be some of the Hades program that we talked about and uh, some of the fixed wing ISR stuff. Uh, let's see. He talked a little bit about long range, uh, precision fires. He called it precision at range. And he mentioned the precision strike missile. He called it prism. I haven't heard that. So prism, if you hear prism, that means a a precision strike missile, the mid range capability, uh, batteries and the long range hypersonic weapons. Uh, let's see. And I took a note on that. So if you're just keeping track, those three systems, are uh, two of them are at theater level. That's the uh, that new uh, multi-domain task force that we talked about. They got that fires battalion, and they're going to have two batteries in that battalion, I guess. Uh, one will be long-range hypersonic weapons, and the other one will be the mid-range capability. And I got the ranges on those suckers somewhere. I think we'll cover it in just a bit. Let's see what else. Uh, let me pause there. One second. Okay, moving right along. So the Flora program, uh, they're going to select a contractor at some point. They're going to select a vendor. We know it's between Bell and uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Sikorsky. And then they're going to develop it. And uh, and we move on on that. So that's Flora Okay, OMFE, uh, optionally manned fighting vehicle. They think within the next year they're going to downselect uh, from th- to three companies to build prototypes, and that'll be the Bradley replacement. Let's see what else. Okay, so he said uh, he's working with industry to be responsive to uh, Ukraine's needs. Congress has been very supportive, and he said the Ukraine crisis is one reason why we must have an organic defense base in DOD for crises like Ukraine. So I guess there's two types of defense space. There's the organic defense space, which, you know, DOD controlled. And then there's the defense industrial base, which is probably civilian controlled. Didn't know that, but now I do. Uh, 
And he says, uh, thanks to the, the organic industrial base and DOD, uh, the artillery and the ammunition facilities and workers are the reason why that Ukraine's been able to, they've been able to keep up with Ukraine's needs because of those folks. All right, then we switch to General Rainey, who's AFC commander. Um, and his job is, what is the future force? Uh, what is the material need for modernization and other stuff? You know, like doctrine and uh, not doctrine, but uh, dot mo pf. And uh, I shouldn't have said that. I don't want to get into all that. But anyway, what is the future force? What is the need? And what is there to do? And that's verified through science and technology and experimentation. And his job is to build the army of 2030 and to design the army of 2040. That's pretty straightforward. And his takeaways were. Uh, confirmation bias, you know, let's not go crazy about all the stuff that we're seeing in Ukraine, you know, that we've got everything right, everything that we're doing is correct. Let's, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, let's see what else. He said land matters. You know, land warfare matters. That's one thing out of the Ukraine. Uh, the NCO Corps and the Army is vital, which we all knew. Uh the future force has got to be able to fight under continuous observation. You can't pile things up. You can't stop for long periods of time or pile up vehicles because you're going to get blasted. And you're seeing that in Ukraine. Let's see. Got to learn how to fight under constant observation. And for armored vehicles, you know, the last 20 years, we all the vehicles the Army has been building and military has been building have been kind of bottom up for the IED stuff. EFPs and and whatnot, and maybe we need to start thinking about top-down threats from uh, uh, drones and and you know aerial munitions that sort of thing. And important things are skill, will of soldiers, NCO readiness and training. No surprises there. Shoot, we're at eighteen minutes already. I hope I'm not boring everybody. And pause right there. Okay, real quick, we'll dive into this story from Breaking Defense. Andrew Everson, Army Next Gen Flora helicopter will be chosen in the next few months, McConville says. Uh, the timeline for future long-range assault aircraft is unclear after senior, senior leaders seem to push it, push it back from an expected October announcement. Uh, Army officials spent this year predicting a decision on Flora would come in September, then change it to October. But the Army's top officer threw cold water on the excitement, hinting the decision could slide by several months. I wonder why. And, of course, the Army's top officer is Army General James McConville, Chief of Staff. Let's see. Um, earlier in the day, Secretary of the Army Christine Wormuth reportedly said at AUSA that the Florida decision, I think, will take, I think it will be a little more time. Uh, the comments from the two senior leaders bring a new cloud of uncertainty over the Flora decision. Other Army leaders at the show have avoided pr providing any insight on the apparent delay or when the award will come. Speaking at the media roundtable yesterday, Major General Walter Rugen, Director of Future Vertical Lift Cross-Functional Team, who's basically responsible for all this, for the requirement anyway, declined to get into the reason for the wait, saying, I'm not going to get into that. And there's no reason why anybody wants to talk to you, uh, Major General Walter Rugen, other than that. Well, I mean, I don't know what else you're going to talk about. Uh, let's see what else. I guess I'm being mean there. Uh, real quick, and then what is this guy, Davis? Rodney Davis, acting deputy PEO for aviation, told reporters 
that the Army wouldn't provide specific dates. He's the fourth person to say that. We are a real quiet period for Flora. Uh, we are working through a very event-driven but rigorous process to get that decision. We're not ready to release that today. We expect we'll have a good decision, relatively short order. We're not talking exact dates. So that's it. Enough on Flora. You know, I sent an email to, uh, I think, Boeing and Bell separately saying, hey, if you want to talk about milestones or events and, you know, insinuating the Flora program, just, you know, let me know. Of course, neither of them reached out to me, so... I, I can understand that, but anyway, I made the effort. Maybe I should make another effort. All right, moving on. Now, this is a different story. Kind of, uh, this is from Defense Post, a site that I like. It's from Ali Peter Neil Galleon, October 12th. U.S. Army orders night vision system from Elbit Systems. Uh, the U.S. Army is, or, uh, they're buying NVGBs. The Army has awarded Elbit Systems of America a $107 million contract for enhanced night vision goggle binocular, EMVGB. And the reason why I think this is important, because I think, this is me thinking, it's directly tied to IVAS. Because, um, you know, the IVAS is for the next, um, the 100K force, the close combat force. We talked about this. And, um, and so is the EMVGB for that matter. So if IVAS is struggling, then you're going to have to put more EMVGBs into the 100K force. And if IVAS is not struggling, you'll put less in. To me, it's a math problem. Or you can use those EMVGBs somewhere else. And they've, the Army has already talked about, or the Congress has already told the Army to, talk about, uh, to think about a mixed force of EMVGB and IVAS. So maybe not everybody needs IVAS. Maybe of a nine-soldier squad, you got three with IVAS and, and six with uh, EMVGB. But anyway, so I think it's kind of related. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, but anyway, so $107 million contract. Uh, this deal requires Elbit systems, supply parts, logistics support, test equipment for two years starting in 2023, next year. And it goes into EMVGB, lays, weighs less than 2.5 pounds, it's got uh, white phosphor uh, image Im intensifier, intensifier tubes. That's called I2 image intensifier, night vision, basically. The white phosphor is supposed to be the best ones, the good ones. That's why it's so darn good. And it also has uh, a thermal in it. And it also has a wireless connection to, you know, stuff. Uh, FWSI, which is the uh, a thermal weapon site. So it's a, a great system. Um, and I went to Jane's. Jane says that these suckers are $55,000 a piece. Uh, this is from Ashley Roquet, 29 March 22, Pentagon Budget 2023, Army Banking on IVAS Cuts Night Vision Programs. Anyway, that's not important, but the, what's important is the article says that um, they speculate that the, uh, the EMVGB costs $55,000 a piece. So if you do the math, and I did the math somewhere, uh, stand by. If you do the math, $107 million uh, divided by 55000 is 1945 So basically 2000 you get 2,000 EMVGBs for $107 million, roughly. And that's enough for 50 platoons, because each platoon is about 40. And if two platoons, roughly about 40. We'll use 40. That'll get you 50 platoons. And which will get you 16 companies, which will get you four battalions, will get you basically one brigade. This is my one over the world math. So 107 million, 
will get you a brigade's worth of EMVGBs. That's my guess. Uh, enough on that. How much time have I got? I got 24 minutes. This might work out just fine. So I was going to do this uh, Jen Jetson article on Project Convergence, but that might be a good article to do with the MDO uh, FM3O, the new one. So I'll, I won't do that one. Um, so I'll do this one real quick, and then we'll be done. This is Firepower and People, Army Chief on Keys to Future War, exclusive. Uh, this is from Sidney Freeberg and Andrew Everson from 10 October, day one of AUSA. I guess they had a sit-down with General McConville, Chief of Staff. Uh, it says here, Ukraine war proves the Army proves the army is right to focus on high-tech, long-range weapons and old-school, high-intensity training. Chief of Staff General McConville tells Breaking Defense. And then in the, back, in the back, you had that General Rainey warning, let's not go crazy patting herself on the back. But anyway... Um, What lessons should the American military take to heart, he's asked, and the general, the U.S. Army's top officer, who General McConville says, we're seeing the impact of long-range precision fires. HIMARS has been a game-changer for the Ukrainians. Uh, and he says the battle has shifted, and he's right. The first phase of the fight, it was a def, uh, desperate defense against onrushing Russian, onrushing Russian armor. Onrushing Russian armor. Put a premium on man-portable anti-tank weapons like the Javelin and the In-Law. It says the British In-Law, but I think In-Law is made by Saab, a Swedish company. But I think they were given to the Ukrainians by the British. But anyway, uh, defenders also needed shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles like the Stinger. And then, then it kind of turned into an artillery war. And that's when the M777s came into play, he says, gave them much more capacity. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And now with HIMARS, they have the ability to engage across the depth of the battlefield. Um, let's see. Then the article switches back to the U.S. Army modernization, talking about um, hypersonic missiles and whatnot. Moving on. So in 2023, the Army will get its first combat-ready prototypes of three new long-range precision fire systems, the hypersonic Dark Eagle missile, whose classified range is estimated at over 1,700 miles. That's going to go to the the, um, multi-domain task force uh, fires battery. I think there's two batteries. One will be of these things, and the other one will be of the next thing we're going to talk about, the mid-range capability, which is also known as a Typhoon which repurposes Navy SM-6 missiles and tomahawks for strikes at ranges of about 1,000 miles. So the multi-domain task force, you'll have that fires battalion with two batteries. One will fire these hypersonic, long-range hypersonic missiles at 1,700 miles, supposedly. And the other one will be the mid-range capability, which will fire about 1,000 miles. That's the other battery. And then, of course, the precision strike missile, also known as PRISM, which will go into a HIMARS launcher or MLRS launcher, will fire and hit targets at 300 miles away, and thus going to replace the Attackums missile, which we've talked about before, which I think that thing goes 180 miles. All right, moving on. That's enough on precision fires. So he says precision fires are important. We're investing in precision fires, and we're good to go. Here's another. This is a pretty good um, take, and this is what General Rainey said. Dispersion mobility tactics are or the Army must relearn after a generation in Afghanistan and Iraq where U.S. forces built up extensive static infrastructures of big bases, supply dumps, and well-appointed command posts. 
So um, command posts are going to have to be moved very quickly, jump in the talk, as they say, and they have to be dispersed and smaller. And this will require a change in mindset and doctrine, and which leads to what McConville considers the most crucial weapon system, the human brain, human factor training and, do- training and doctrine. And he talks about uh, human factor, which is soldiers' will and skill. Uh, does he talk about NCOs in here? Let's see. Uh, he starts talking about uh, training, high-intensity training, and he refers to the National Training Center, of course, out of California, and JRTC, Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, and probably out of JRMRC in uh, Germany. It's now large-scale operations. Over the last 20 years, we focus on counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. Um, now, if you have command posts, you're going to have to move them or they'll be targeted. Your command posts are going to be jammed. Just like General Rainey was saying, you ain't going to be able to bunch up anymore. You're going to have to fight as you're being observed. And let's see, moving on. I'm not going to go much lower, further in this. People are our greatest strength. That's it. He doesn't say anything about NCOs. I'm surprised. But anyway, not bad. 29 minutes. I think I'm done. Uh, one more thing. Should I talk about Twitter? Might as well. So we're on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handle is at defense underscore podcast. If you can find the time, check us out. I did a poll. I call it the unofficial official iron defense podcast, future long range assault aircraft, Flora poll. I did it for 48 hours. Uh, it was a poll between the V80 V280 Valor from Bell and the SB1 Defiant from Lockheed Martin, Sikorsky and Boeing. And I had 18 votes, and the V280 Valor won 56, 55.6 to 44.4. So it was kind of close. Only 18 votes, though. So I'll do this again uh, as we get closer, maybe in a month or so, to see what everybody thinks. I tried to put two pictures in there, one of each. And anyway, I tried to make it as fair as possible. I tried to make the aircraft um, about the same size and stuff like that. Uh, Bell did a good job of putting a lot of pictures on their website, so I had a, quite a few to choose from. Being the honest broker here, Sikorsky, Boeing, Lockheed, they didn't have many good pictures, and they're not selling themselves too well. There was articles all over the place on the Bell uh, on V280 Valor. Uh, the Defiant was a little tough to find. So anyway, if you're listening, Sikorsky, Boeing, Lockheed, you might want to advertise yourself a little bit better. Uh, and what my opinion on it is, is just my opinion. I'm not going to share my opinion on which one I think should win. I think that's it. Are we at 30 minutes? Yes, we're at 30 minutes. So the next episode, I'm going to try to get into the new FM3O and um, Project Convergence, which we know is kicked off already. There's a really good article from Jen Judson on Project Convergence. I'd recommend you reading it called Project Convergence Exercise Has New Gateway to Testing Emerging Tech. It's a really good article. She breaks it down, Barney style, for people like me. And uh, she interviews this guy. I think it's General Jones that he interviews. I don't know who she interviews. Yeah, General Jones. He did a little... uh, webinar on it or some sort of streaming event on it and i watched it it was pretty good uh yeah she interviewed him that's right so i think she did this article off that interview maybe he breaks it down pretty easy so if you want to know what's going on uh check out this article and i'll do i'll I'll do a show about that and i'll probably throw in fm30 on it so i guess that's it so 
Are we on 59? I think we're on 59. That's it. 59's in the books. Thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned for probably one more episode on AUSA, and that'll be it. Um, if not, I can clean up stuff in another episode. So anyway, thanks for tuning in. Thank you, and good night.